Let me invite you to turn once again to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, last week, we looked at the faith of Abraham and Sarah, particularly in the episode in which they were trusting God to give them a son, even in their old age. She was 90, he was 100. That's important that we understand that Isaac was the son of promise. God had promised that he was going to make Abraham's descendant, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as, as the grains of sand on the seashore. But, seashore. But, but for years, 25 years, Abraham and Sarah waited with no child after God had made that promise. They waited in faith, but their faith was not unwavering. Their faith did falter for a time, and we'll consider that in a few moments, but Hebrews 11 doesn't mention that. It doesn't mention their failures. It only mentions their faith. But ultimately, Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise. He was the son of promise. Now, the story that I read in Genesis 22, it's baffling. It's perplexing. Why would God, who promised to make a great nation of Abraham through his son Isaac, then command Abraham to slaughter Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, we know how the story ends. We know that Isaac is ultimately delivered, so it may not be as troubling to us 4,000 years later as it was to Abraham in the midst of this great dilemma. But when Abraham received that command of God, humanly speaking, it was the absolute worst thing he could imagine. R.C. Sproul calls the sacrifice of Isaac the greatest test of Abraham's life, and the greatest test of Abraham's faith. Three things we're going to look at in our study of this passage this morning. First of all, the nature of Abraham's test of faith, the nature of the test of his faith. Secondly, Abraham's response to this test of his faith. And thirdly, God's faithfulness through Abraham's test of faith. So let's look, first of all, what's the nature of this test of Abraham's faith? Now, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that God frequently tests the faith of his saints, not in a, a way to punish us, but to test us, to prove us genuine, and to grow us and mature us even more. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, James writes, count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when our faith is tested, we can know that whatever else God is up to, he is intentionally seeking to make our faith more steadfast, that we would become more mature and more complete in Jesus Christ. It's through the test of difficult obedience that we develop this steadfastness, that we develop this endurance, that we grow into a more complete and mature faith. And God commonly employs trials to accomplish that purpose. A few verses down in James 1, he says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, Early on it says he tests us. Now it says he doesn't tempt anyone. What's, is James talking out of both sides of his mouth? No, of course not. 
The reality is God does not test or tempt us by dangling sinful temptation before us. The enemy is the one who who introduces sin. But God does test us with difficult obedience, with sorrow, with hardship, with challenges of various kinds. And that's what we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. God is testing Abraham with difficult obedience. God had given him tremendous promises. He promised him a land. He promised him a son. He promised him a great nation. And that nation would be a blessing to the entire world. And so Abraham packed up everything he owned. And with his wife and with their belongings and their servants, they moved and followed the Lord to this place they'd never been before. They didn't know where they were going. And they set out to wherever it was God was directing him to go. And then it seems like God put Abraham on hold. He didn't let him build a city. Didn't let him build a little kingdom. He didn't give him a child. And he and Sarah waited year after year after year. And these years of waiting in themselves were a test of Abraham's faith. And to be frank, at one point Abraham failed the test, didn't he? He took matters in his own hands. We, we read of that in Genesis 17. You don't need to, to turn there, but Sarah reasoned, if God is not going to give me a son, then maybe Abraham can have a son through my maidservant, Hagar. So she went to Abraham and said, uh, take Hagar and let her bear your son. And that was Sarah's idea, but Abraham should not have fallen for it. Abraham should have resolved, no, that's not what God told us to do. That's not the way he said to do it. And uh, so he, he did what his wife suggested, and it, was, uh, it led to generations, I would say millennia, of heartache and trouble. His faith faltered for a time, but that was a midterm exam. The final exam he passed with flying colors which is why we read of him in Hebrews 11. And sometimes we feel like, boy, I just really blew it. Well, that might have been a midterm, all right? But God's not finished with us yet, and he's going to complete the work he began in us. But Abraham realized from that failure, I need to trust God. He truly is faithful. He'll do what he says he'll do, and the evidence that he trusted God is that he obeyed God. He did not have... Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 to read. That wasn't written for probably another 1,000 years. But I hope you've memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do so. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Three things we must do. Trust in him with all our heart. Do not lean on our understanding. In all our ways, everything, acknowledge him. And what's he going to do? He'll direct us. He'll guide us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake the psalmist says. Abraham did not have that biblical verse written out, but he certainly had that principle emblazoned on his heart. And so when his faith was tested and refined, he learned that principle, and then he put it into practice. Now, one aspect of this test was a test of his love for God. God says that we're to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. He calls us to love him, hear this, parents, more than we love even our own children. You think about, do I really love God more than my own flesh and blood? Do I love God more than these precious children, grandchildren God has entrusted to me? That's what he's calling us to do. 
We're to put knowing, no one and nothing, no other gods before our God. And it's hard to imagine having to choose between God and your child. But that is the choice that was set before Abraham. God's instruction to Abraham was, take your son, your only son Isaac, the son that you love. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah, up on the mountain, and offer them him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll tell you about. <clears throat> Simon Kistemaker in his commentary says, if God had taken Isaac from Abraham through some accident or some illness, that would have been a terrible test of his faith. And those of you who have experienced the loss of a child know what a terrible test of your faith such loss is. But this is even more terrible. God was calling Abraham willingly to sacrifice his own son. Now, this command is confusing on many levels. Now, first of all, we know that child sacrifice was an abomination to the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the promised land after wandering around for 40 years, and so God is uh, restating his law. Deuteronomy means second law. He's restating his commandments and giving them their final marching orders, and one of the things that he says to them, he tells them of the pagans that they will meet in the land and of their worship practices and their idolatries and the ways they worshiped their gods, and he says this, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. God is saying that child sacrifice is an abomination. And yet, here he's instructing Abraham to do that very thing. It, 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 it baffles the mind. Not only is it a test of Abraham's love, it's, it, it's the primary aspect of this test. It's a test of Abraham's faith in God. Look again at verses 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I want you to see something really important here. Abraham had received the promise, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac didn't have any children yet. Through Isaac, God had promised to make a great nation. The fulfillment of God's covenant hinged on Isaac living and having children. But then Abraham not only received the promise, he received the command. Offer up Isaac to be burned. By all appearances, this command seems utterly incompatible with a promise. It's hard to imagine having to choose between loving God and loving your child, okay? Uh, we get that. But now it's believing the promise and carrying out this dreadful command. When I say these two things seem incompatible, that word incompatible, kids, it means two things they don't fit together. It's like if you try to take a, a square peg and stick it in a round hole, it doesn't fit. They're incompatible. And it seemed like this promise and this command couldn't possibly come from the same source. 
How can the promise to bless Abraham through Isaac be fulfilled if Abraham is commanded to kill Isaac? It seems like a contradiction. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to make any sense at all. So here's the real test. Abraham had left his home. He followed God. Everything he hoped for from God hinged. It depended upon Isaac growing up and having a son named Jacob. And God seems to be telling him, or he is telling him, to do something that seemingly would prevent that from ever happening. His faith was tested. Will I trust the Lord? Will I obey his command? When doing so seems like it will put an end to the covenant promises God's made to me. That's a terrible dilemma. How do you work your way through something like that? Well, I want you to see, secondly, Abraham's response to this great test of his faith. First of all, let's talk about what he did not do. He did not argue with God. He did not say, God, that makes no sense. I'm not sure you really understand what it is you're asking me to do. Now, I mentioned this because earlier in his life, that's actually exactly what Abraham did. In Genesis 17, remember I said that his faith faltered for a time. In Genesis 17, the Lord came to Abraham, and he established, renewed his covenant. And then he said to Abraham, you are going to have a son through your wife, Sarah. Not Ishmael. Now, Ishmael by that time was already 13 years old. And Abraham had for those years been assuming that Ishmael was the son of promise. And we read in Genesis 17, it says that Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. He wasn't laughing in faith or belief and joy. He was laughing in unbelief. It just seemed ludicrous to him. Because next he questioned God. He considered the impossibility of all. He said, shall a child be born to me, to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90-year-old, bear a child? It's like, God, I'm not sure you're very good at math here. Or maybe you're just not very good at biology. This is not possible. Now, God's not asking Abraham to do something terribly difficult at this point. He's saying he is going to do something that would, humanly speaking, be impossible. And Abraham is arguing with God. In fact, he goes even further. He, he tries to renegotiate. It says in verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You don't need to give a child to Sarah. That, that ship has sailed. Ishmael, he's the one. Abraham's arguing back with God. That's never a good idea, by the way. Okay. Now, Hebrews 11 doesn't record those responses that evidence a lack of faith at that time. But what we see is that Abraham learned a very important lesson, and his faith grew. (laughs) His faith grew when he was 99 years old. Don't let people tell you that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We should be growing in faith and growing in grace until we cross over into heaven. God is at work molding us and shaping us and conforming us to the image of Christ until that process is complete. So God knows better than we do what we need. 
God knows better than we do what is right and what is best. He is infinitely wise, infinitely omniscient. He knows better than we do. So my advice to you, dear friends, is don't talk back to God. (laughs) And that's what Abraham did. So, but here, these years later, 13 years later, Isaac, maybe 15, 17 years later, we don't know. Isaac was most likely a teenager. He was big and strong enough to carry the firewood. We know that. Abraham does not talk back to God. He does not ask God, why are you telling me to do this thing? Have you ever insisted, I need to know why before I'm going to step out and do this? Parents, do your kids ever do that? You tell them to do something, well, why? And so you start explaining to them. Well, that doesn't make sense to them. They keep saying why. Rather than, I will obey you because you're my dad or you're my mom and you've told me what to do. It's, it's like they're saying, until you explain it to me in terms that I understand and agree with, I don't feel like I'm obligated to obey you. What's that called? It's called rebellion. It's called self-will. It's a lack of submission and obedience. You don't, have to, you don't have to understand or agree in order to submit and obey. And Abraham doesn't understand but he's not committed to self-will. He's committed to walking by faith rather than by sight. God had taught Abraham to trust him. And now he's testing that faith. He's testing that trust. And Abraham doesn't demand to know why. He rises early and sets out upon the mission God has given him. And that's the third thing he doesn't do. He doesn't delay. He didn't hesitate. He didn't negotiate. He didn't vacillate. He didn't equivocate, and he didn't deliberate. He got up early and set about the work God had called him to do. Do you ever hesitate? Do you ever put off doing something that you know God wants you to do, but it's just hard? And you don't want to do it, and you know it's going to be difficult, maybe even painful, maybe costly, and so you put it off. And you, put, you know what happens when we put it off? The longer you put it off, the harder it gets. You ever notice that? The more you put it off, the more your heart is pulled in different directions, and it just becomes harder and harder to obey. The best thing is get busy doing what God has called you to do at the first opportunity he's given you to do it. And that's coming from someone who is afflicted with procrastination uh, as a character flaw. My wife will tell you, she's afflicted with my procrastination many times. Uh, But the reality is Abraham doesn't procrastinate. He gets about it right away. So, let's look at what he did do. He, first of all, he rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took these two young men with him. He took his son Isaac. He cut the firewood, and he set off for Moriah, just as God had instructed him to do. He resolved that he was going to do what God commanded him to do, and then he set out to do it, even though it was a heart-rending journey. Uh, just think about How much sleep do you think Abraham got the night before? Do you think he slept just as peacefully as he had when everything was going wonderfully well? I don't think so. I imagine he probably tossed and turned. I imagine it was a very fitful and difficult night. His heart was most likely very troubled and very restless. I imagine he was wrestling with his own self to put his faith and his trust in the Lord, knowing he had to and knowing he must, and yet, His heart was pulled by the sorrow of the situation. 
The Bible doesn't tell us that. But the reality is Abraham is a hero of the faith, not a superhero. He was very human like we are. And I think, I think it's reasonable to think that that was a tough night, as were the subsequent nights, because it was a three-day journey. He slept two nights during the journey. I expect on some level he was fearful, maybe even terrified at the prospect. That's why I read as a call to worship David's words, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I will not be afraid. Now, that's not doublespeak. David is not saying, when I'm afraid, I won't be afraid. What David is saying there is, when I feel fear, I will not allow that fear to rule my heart. I cannot help it whether fear takes place in my heart. I can't help it if, if when facing a situation that seems much bigger than I am, if my heart feels afraid. But I can choose whether I'm going to let fear rule my heart or whether I'm going to cast myself upon the mercy and the grace of my faithful God. That's what David does. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Therefore, fear will not rule my heart. And that's what Abraham does. He casts himself upon the Lord. And he trusts in him. The secret to overcoming fear is to put your trust in something bigger than whatever it is you're afraid of. Some of you know that, I think it's a Veggie Tale song, God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. That's an important truth. Little kids at night are afraid of the boogeyman. God's way bigger than that. And if we can put our trust in him, the boogeyman loses his power. Well, Abraham trusted in God rather than trusting in his own understanding as we talked about, as we looked at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 a moment ago. God had told him what to do. Excuse me. God had told him, first of all, what he would do. He's given him a promise. And then he's told Abraham what he must do. He's given him a command. And the promise and the command seem to be at odds. They seem to be inconsistent, even contradictory or incompatible. How can God fulfill his promise if Abraham obeys his command? That's the predicament Abraham found himself in. And Abraham did not, hear me, Abraham did not allow his confusion to get in the way of his obedience. I don't need to understand how God's going to work that out. I know he promised. I know he commanded. I can't really do much about what he promised, but I can do something about what he commanded. Richard Brooks, one of the commentators, says this. He says, the patriarch in a striking illustration of his faith was entirely content to leave the reconciliation of those two things with God. I don't have to work it out. God God will work it out. He understands. He knows what he's doing. I'll trust him. He knows better than I know. Dr. Richard Phillips at Second Pres downtown in Greenville wrote this. He said, if God has commanded it, then God knows what he's doing and is able to work it out for good. If God has commanded it, then he knows what he's doing. I'm supposed to believe that. I'm supposed to believe Romans 8, 28. He's going to work it out for my good, whatever that might look like in the providence of God. Another thing we see Abraham doing here, he, he engaged his mind. He used his reasoning ability to fortify his faith. Now, think about that for a minute. Sometimes we reason our way out of faith. 
we look at all the problems and we think about the problems and then the more we think about them, the more problematic they get and pretty soon we can't find how it would be possible to trust in the Lord. The more we mull it over in our minds, the more we consider the impossibility of our trial, the weaker and the weaker and weaker our faith becomes. Well, that's not what Abraham did. It says in verse 19, he considered, which means he really thought about it. He really thought about it. He considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. Now, that word consider is the word we get our word logic from. He applied logic to the situation. Not human logic. Human logic says this is contradictory. It's impossible. He applied kingdom logic. He applied spirit-inspired logic. He applied logic fueled and directed by faith in God and the fear of God. And so he engaged these spiritual powers of reason and logic not to construct excuses why obedience was impossible or didn't make any sense, but rather he began reasoning from a posture of trust. I'm going to trust God. That's my starting point. Okay, well, here's, here, here's the promise. My offspring would come to me through Isaac. I got that. And now God's telling me to kill Isaac. Okay, I, I got to go back to my starting point. I'm, I'm, I'm working through this from a posture of trust, not distrust. So I've got to learn how can I trust God through this? If God cannot lie, if God's promises are absolutely certain, then how is this possible? I'm not sure. What are some possible scenarios in which he might do this? So rather than concluding it must be impossible, he, cons- he began to consider ways that it might actually be possible. And he concluded this. This is where he landed. He said, if I kill my son, my beloved son Isaac, if I slaughter him with a knife and if I burn his body so that nothing is left but ashes, even then God is able to raise my son up to the de- from the dead and return him to me safe. God is able to do all his holy will. He's able to fulfill all of his good promises to me. God is able to restore my son to me alive. How? I don't know, and I don't need to know. He's God. I'm not. That is reasoning from faith rather than from unbelief. And it's reasoning that leads to obedience, not to disobedience. And the way we know that Abraham, in Genesis 22, it doesn't say that he expected this kind of a miracle. But the way we know that was what was going on in his heart and his mind. You remember what he said to those two young men who were with him? He leaves the donkey there, and he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, hear this, will go over there and worship and come to you again. So he says to his servants, Isaac and I are going to go to the top of the mountain. Isaac and I are going to worship God there, and Isaac and I are going to return to you. And I'm sure he really had no idea exactly how God was going to pull that off. He just knew what God had called him to do. Now, it's interesting to me that he didn't, in all of the things he thought about, possible scenarios, he didn't seem to entertain the idea that God was going to give him a substitute. He really believed God intended him to kill his son. But he was confident that Isaac would be with him when he returned from the mountain. So let's walk through this heart-rending obedience 
to which God has called Abraham. He's gotten up, and he's made provisions, and they set out on the journey, and it says that they slept two nights. So it was a three-day journey. And then he reached the mountain, and he says to his servant, you stay here, and Isaac, let's go. And at some point, as they're ascending the mountain, Isaac says to his father, my father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Don't you know that question was like a dagger in his soul? And Abraham couldn't bring himself to say, Isaac, you're it. He said, God himself will provide the lamb. But he wasn't expecting a substitute. And we know that because he got to the, to the top of the mountain, and he built an altar, and he put the wood on it, and then he bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. I find that an amazing I find that incredible amount of faith. I also find it pretty amazing that Isaac let him do it. His father was 100 years old. When I was 40, I tried to run a foot race with my 14-year-old son, and he was eight steps before I was two. Uh, Isaac could have easily evaded his father, and yet he said, here, father. And he let him bind him, I'm assuming, hand and foot, and let him lay him on the altar. Where do you put something like that other than the glorious grace of God and trusting in God? Abraham believed that Isaac was going to be the sacrificial lamb. He believed that he was going to have to take this knife in his hand and and kill his son and then burn him as a sacrifice to the Lord. And so for three days, Abraham has been walking with Isaac and with these two young men And he alone knew this dreadful assignment God had laid upon him. Now, fathers, let me ask you this. Do you ever have a moment where you do something with your kids that you know, well, mom's a bit cautious. She probably wouldn't be real excited if she knew we were doing this. You know, that's what I call a don't tell mom moment. Okay, this was a don't tell mom moment for Abraham and Isaac. But Abraham knew Sorrow that most of us could never imagine. And it's interesting, in James 1, we read earlier, we're to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. I don't think Abraham was cheerful. I don't think Abraham was lighthearted. But I also don't think that joy and heavy-heartedness and sorrow are incompatible. Real Christians going through deep sorrows can still have an unshakable joy. Abraham's heart surely was heavy, but his obedience was decisive. It was resolute. Richard Phillips says this. There there are four aspects he points out of the faith that we see in Abraham's obedience. I'd like to point those out to you. One, One, faith kneels before the Lord in humble submission. Unbelief is rooted in pride. It's the idea, I know better than God. If God's command doesn't make sense to me, then why should I obey it? That is unbelief. That is pride. That is self-will. And it always leads to disobedience. But humble faith leads to submission. He's God, and I'm not. I don't understand, but I don't have to understand. God knows. The second thing, faith that receives God's promises must also obey God's commands. Abraham was delighted to receive the promises of God. And by faith he did, but he also must obey his commands. 
Remember when Job and his wife suffered great sorrow? And his wife said, Job, why are you holding on to your faith? Curse God and die. And Job says, you're speaking foolishly. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not also receive evil? Should we only worship God when he blesses us in the ways that we want to be blessed? Or should we worship him when our hearts are breaking? The reality is when our hearts are breaking, if we still worship him, that brings him more glory because it proclaims that he is worthy of our worship, not because of what he gives us, but because of who he is. Third thing, faith obeys even without answers to all of our questions. Abraham tried to reason his way through this. And again, he started from a posture of trust. That's good. But as he was walking up that mountain, can't you imagine all of the questions bombarding him? And I'm sure Satan was still going, did God really say, just like he did with Eve? But even from a posture of faith, there would be many questions. And he doesn't have the answers. But there was one thing he was absolutely certain of. He was certain that God had told him to go up on that mountain and do what he was about to do. And fourthly, Abraham obeyed God. He was able to obey God because he knew God. And he knew God was fully worthy of his trust. You know, when you trust someone implicitly, you don't need an explanation for everything they say and do. You know, if you don't really trust somebody, well, why'd you say that? What's your purpose here? But if you absolutely know someone and trust them and you know their heart, you don't need an explanation even if you may not have all the facts or even if all your questions have not been answered. Abraham knew God. He knew God was utterly worthy of his trust, and so he trusted him. Every ounce of human reasoning would say, Abraham, don't do it. If there's no Isaac, there will be no offspring. If there's no Isaac, there will be no promise. If there's no Isaac, there will be no Messiah. Abraham knew what God told him to do, and he, and he also knew God had not reneged on his promise. Well, let's spend just a few moments looking at God's faithfulness through this Abraham's test of faith. Most of us learn this story as children, right? We've known this, this story for a long time. And so we knew, as, as we read this morning, we knew that, that, that God was going to send the ram. We weren't in turmoil like, how could this be? But imagine for a moment that you have no biblical background whatsoever. And particularly if you're a parent and you have children and you read this, would you not find this really troubling? Would you not find, as you see and you think of Abraham climbing the mountain with his son, knowing what is about to take place, would you not have something churning inside your, your, your heart and your soul? And then when he finally sees that ram in the thicket, would you not feel enormous relief? And joy. That's what we're intended to experience as we reflect on the story once again. Now, I want you to notice that God waits until the very last minute to deliver Isaac. And in fact, he says, while he's in the very act of the knife is in his hand, ready to slaughter his son, God says, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son your only son, from me. My question to you is, didn't God already know that? God who knows everything, he knows the beginning from the end, he knows everything that will happen, he knows everything that could happen. 
Didn't he already know? Of course he did. I'm not sure Abraham knew. (laughs) And you and I needed to know. We needed to see this example of real, lively faith in a God who is utterly faithful. God graciously enabled Abraham to trust in him in the middle of this difficult test. But this was not the first test, right? He had tested Abraham's faith numerous times over these years. Abraham had been following him. He was proving, and he was refining, and he was uh, 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 purifying and strengthening Abraham's faith. He was increasing Abraham's confidence that God is utterly trustworthy, which is what faith is. And so when the real test of faith came, Abraham was ready for it. God had prepared him for decades. But God also provides for us in Abraham's story a powerful object lesson about his own dear son, about the gospel. Verse 19 says, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That word figuratively speaking literally is in parabole, in a parable. It's, it's this, there's an object lesson here. We sang about it a moment ago. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. That event of Abraham offering his son and then receiving him back again, it's gripping drama. It's a powerful object lesson for you and for me. God the Father who willingly offered up his only son. He gave Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He said, no man takes it from me. I have authority to take it down and authority to raise it up again. And that's a glorious picture of the gospel. But there was no substitute for Jesus. Isaac got off the hook, as it were, because there was a ram in the thicket. There was no ram in the thicket for Jesus. So my question to you is, Jesus, is Isaac a picture of Jesus, or is the ram in the thicket a picture of Jesus? And some of you know how I'll answer that question. The answer is yes. Up until the point when Abraham has the knife ready to plunge, Isaac is demonstrating a willingness to give himself in obedience to his father. But as he is relieved from this terrible sentence of death, Isaac becomes like you and me, needing a substitute. And now the substitute is brought in. And that ram is God's provision so that Isaac might live. And the Lord Jesus is God's provision that you and I might live. He alone is an acceptable sacrifice. He alone could pay the terrible price that our penalty or that our sins required. I want to point out for you that this greatest of all Abraham's tests came late in his life. And that's significant for a few reasons. One is we see Abraham's faith growing over time. He failed some lesser tests, but later he passes the greatest test of his life. I'm not sure he would have passed this test 25 years or even 15 years earlier. But through all of the years, as God molded and shaped and matured Abraham, 
And Abraham trusted the Lord and found God faithful to him. His faith was tested and was strengthened and was ready by God's grace, not by his own strength or his own faith even, ready for this test. Abraham had to wait 25 years before Isaac was born, and that in itself was a tremendous test of his faith. Now, once Isaac was born, think with me. If you've been through a trial, and it's tumultuous, and you're feeling the, the weight of it, and then the trial is over, it's very easy to conclude at that point, I am so glad that's over. I think it'll be smooth sailing from here. Anybody ever fallen for that one? I have. I think it'll be smooth sailing from here. And then it's not. Because God is growing us, conforming us to the image of Christ all the way until we get to glory. And in Abraham's case, the greatest trial of his life required all of those other smaller trials as preparation. Third thing I want us to walk away with is a recognition that we're beneficiaries of Abraham's faith. Our faith is informed and it's inspired by what we read about Abraham in Genesis 22 and in Hebrews 11. So I ask you this morning, are you facing some kind of difficult obedience? Is there some way that God has made clear to you, this is what you need to do? It may be difficult, it may be costly. You may not want to do it, but this is what you need to do. He's not going to come and speak to us in an audible voice like he did with Abraham. That day has passed as the scriptures have been completed. But in his word and through his spirit, in your conscience, is there difficult obedience? You know that God is calling you to. God does not tempt you to do evil, but he does call us to costly obedience. The memory verse that's in our bulletin is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, tells us that we're to run with endurance, the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the author or the, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured what? The cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the worst imaginable trial. And he said in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He submitted to the Father's will. Has God set before you a difficult path of obedience where you're finding yourself wrestling between your will and what you know God's will is? In your conscience, you know what he wants you to do, but you don't want to do it. It, it seems too, too painful, too costly, too, too difficult. Will you trust God the way Abraham trusted God? Will you look to Jesus and the joy that he has set before you? Are you willing to believe that he is faithful to all of his promises, even when you cannot see how? And now as we come to the Lord's table, look at that ram picture of the Lord Jesus, our substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When God provided that ram in the thicket, I'm sure Abraham's heart was flooded with joy, with relief. You can imagine the weight off of his shoulder. Well, the reality is when God takes our sins away and gives us a new heart, he takes a weight of sin off of us. And the Lord's table is our opportunity to celebrate that occasion and that ongoing reason for great joy and deliverance. So I hope as we observe this ordinance that God has given to us, we will remember Jesus is our all, and he's given all 
to make us his. I'd ask the men who are going to serve to come forward at this time.